I'm Cullen, and this is Cauldron, the Great Commander's Edition. Hey guys, um, thank you again for being Patreon subscribers. Uh, I really appreciate it. Uh, every little penny helps to go into the process of kind of putting these um, various podcast episodes together. It's lots of fun, but it is time consuming and uh, it's definitely not cheap. So again, I thank you all very much for being Patreon subscribers and my goal in 2019 is to really make it worth your while. So to kick that off, what I have in mind moving forward is every couple of weeks, um, ideally every other week, I'm going to do a quick little 10-15 minute episode profiling one of history's great commanders. Um, I'm going to try and tie them into the upcoming episodes, and in some cases I'm going to pick pretty much at random. So we might do one on Jan Husk and then one on Cyrus the Great, and then we might do, like in the instance that you're about to hear, one about Erwin Rommel, and the next one about Bernard Montgomery, because the upcoming Cauldron episode is on the Battle of El Alamein. So... Uh, keep your eyes peeled for that. The other thing is, once um, we kind of get into the new year, plan on hearing more from me on a regular basis from the Standard Cauldron. As Patreon subscribers, you guys will get the first pick on Cauldron, so you'll be able to hear it first. Um, it'll be about 24 hours before it goes live. It'll go to Patreon first. And finally, the thing that... I kind of got into this podcasting for and has been a little bit more difficult to figure out a way to make it work, but I think I've kind of, think with some help we've figured it out. The theory cast or the theory making aspect of this whole adventure is going to be exclusively on Patreon. So the idea here is if you guys have your thoughts and theories and ideas about what would have happened to the world if these particular bat battles had gone differently, or if uh, if you were in charge, how you might have gone about winning or not losing certain battles uh, that we cover, by all means, share those. As Patreon subscribers, you guys have the uh, ability to send me your thoughts, and I will put it on the air. I'll record it, and uh, it'll again, it'll be specifically for Patreon subscribers. So... With all of that in mind, thank you very much again, and uh, let's dive right into Erwin Rommel, who is kind of a controversial figure. Um, it's tough to kind of peg down where we stand on Rommel after the war. He's a Nazi. Obviously, that's not ever a good thing, but uh, the post-war allied powers needed to try and pull some German uh, some German heroes or German military leaders out of the group um, that would be tainted by the Holocaust as a way to uh, build up the Western German uh, military to face off with the Soviet bloc. So Rommel was one of those uh, Nazis that was taken 
basically and molded by the allied and NATO powers in the public's eye. So we have this vision of him as this kind of, uh, he's, he's, a, he's a knight, a modern knight. He's a brilliant tank commander. He is the only German Nazi general that can really be looked at and thought of as a gentleman warrior and above the, uh, the massive murdering of, of Jews and, and people in the Holocaust. Whether or not that's true, um, it's up for debate. We're not exactly clear on how much of the Holocaust or the, the murdering that Rommel was fully aware of. It's hard for me to believe that he was completely in the, uh, in the cold on this and, and had no idea. However, it's also not clear as to how much or how in-depth he was aware of anything, but also when. The timeline's important. It, it's not clear if he was uh, made aware of the, the killing of Jews earlier or later. And, and again, it is important, obviously, to note that no matter when he knew or how much he knew, he was a Nazi. He did follow Hitler. And there's no excuse for, uh, for believing in, in the Nazi party ethos. But it was important for the allied powers after the war to try and to remove Rommel as much from that taint as possible. But so that's kind of a, a disclaimer at the head. Let's dive into a little bit about uh, his life and then talk a little bit about why he's important in the grand scheme of, of mobile warfare. So Erwin uh, Rommel was born November 15th, 1891, um, and he would go on to die October 14th, 1944. His key, um, key conflict would have been World War II, but he was a veteran, a highly decorated veteran of the First World War. Uh, he won in the First World War. He earned the uh, coveted Pour le Mérite, which is the highest or was the highest decoration for gallantry. And he wore that. You, you pull up a picture of uh, of Erwin Rommel right now and this big giant uh, cross with all these beautiful colors and flanges. That's the Pour le Mérite, and it was won, I believe he won that at the Battle of Caporetto, which uh, Dan Carlin does a great job explaining Caporetto in his Armageddon podcast. It's this this insane, otherworldly battlefield high up in the mountains where every shell or gunshot that hits the mountainside creates even more shrapnel pinging off and slivers of rocks flying everywhere. And the men are trying to breathe in the high altitudes and there's snow. It's just, it's an unbelievable battlefield. And Rommel wins uh, the highest medal you can win for, uh, for gallantry by the, um, uh, according to the uh, German Empire. In the uh, ensuing interwar periods, Rommel has kind of a less than... Uh, fancy path where he basically he he is all about infantry training and administration and he's kind of a pencil pusher at this point uh, we think of him automatically as this gallant fast dashing 
uh, Roman or, or uh, fast dashing German tank commander. But in the interwar period, he was really well known for uh, for his administration abilities and his training, uh, particularly his training. But it's a book that he publishes in 1937 called Infantry Attacks, where he details these pretty advanced, modern, kind of new age tactical ideas. And it particularly, according to some sources, uh, caught Hitler's attention. And he was drawn into uh, Hitler's circle mainly because Hitler was able to give him... um, uh, Hitler gave him his personal security battalion, and so Rommel was given promotion and was able to start to flesh out some of his more uh, hypothetical or intellectual ideas and turn them into reality uh, with the patronage of Hitler. So after he gets in with Hitler and becomes his personal battalion commander. Uh, Rommel has basically no experience with tanks or armored vehicles at this point, but his connection to Hitler gets him appointed command of the seventh armored division during the invasion of France. And it was, it's this appointment which gets Rommel in the position where he's spearheading the breakneck advance through the Ardennes, which is this thick, dark, almost uh, fairy tale type forest. And at the time, it was believed that there was no way that armor or large groups of modern military forces could have moved through the Ardennes forest, or at least moved through with any speed or with any, um, with any, uh, with any alacrity, but they blast through the Ardennes Force, and it's Rommel at the front. He's uh, he's basically making record time going through, and and from the Ardennes, he he's part of the giant swooping uh, maneuver that the entire German army, which is just kind of like a mirrored opposite of the original World War One plan, the Schlieffen plan, and so all this armored is just flying out of the forest and zooming across the French countryside, headed directly for the English Channel. Channel. And it's it's at this point where Rommel t- starts to become the triumphant German uh, tank commander that we know him of as today, because he struck a hell of a pose and he knew enough about creating uh, a cult of personality and image to have uh, journalists and photographers and videographers along with him as he's you know dashing across the French countryside, passing along all these these battlefields of the Western Front and showing how advanced in the 20-year period war, warfare and movement has become. In February 1941, Rommel was given command of what's now known as the Africa Corps. Uh, it was a force sent to North Africa to prevent the Italians from losing Libya. So uh, Mussolini and his Italian army in North Africa is trying to glom on to some of the the glory that the Germans were getting in Poland and Norway and France and the Low Countries. Mussolini didn't want Hitler to steal all of his thunder, so he sends his army to North Africa to try to recapture the you know parts of the original Roman Empire and try to push the British off of their their territory in Egypt and over by the Suez Canal. What happens is kind of, uh, it's hard to describe and we'll go into it in the, the full Battle of Cauldron episode or the Battle of El Alamein Cauldron episode where 
basically the Italians have a little bit of success because they're they're vastly outnumbering the British, and then uh, the British realize that the Italians' equipment and training and basically their 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 high command is very very. Uh, Poor. So the British end up turning things around, and it's this big cat and mouse across the North African deserts and throughout the coastline of the Mediterranean, where both sides are winning and then losing and then winning and kind of moving at breakneck speed across the, the, the countryside of North Africa. And in the process, the Italians put themselves in some terrible positions and lose hundreds of thousands of men are are being taken prisoner by the British and are falling into uh, allied uh, prisoner of war camps. And Hitler looks at this and it's it's a lot like what happened with the Balkans where Mussolini gets in too quick and just doesn't have the ability to uh, win. So Hitler has to clean up the, the mess that Mussolini makes. And in North Africa, he decides to send, uh, along with his Africa Corps, he sends down his one of his most trusted generals and that happens to be Erwin Rommel. He, uh, he's given, eventually he's given, uh, at first he's in charge of just the Africa Corps, but over time, because his ability proves through and his genius for, uh, defensive war making and, and tactical traps and all that comes, you know, glaring through, uh, Rommel is made the overall commander of all Axis forces in the desert. So what's interesting here is that Rommel is just wildly undersupplied. And from when he goes down in February 1941 until the Battle of El Alamein in 1942, uh, Rommel's able to pull victory in v- after victory out of basically nothing. He's got this scratch force. Uh, it's strong, and, and his tanks are high quality, and his German soldiers are well-trained, and he even eventually gets the Italian troops up to the point where he has a couple of them who, uh, the Areste, and, and I forget the other one, but he's got a couple of these Italian forces that are are comparable to his Germans, and he trusts them enough to put them in key defensive positions, and, and time and time again, he uses them with great skill. But his main problem in North Africa is that the the Royal Navy and the Royal Air Force have basically made supplying him across the Mediterranean, if not impossible, then very, very spotty. And so between fuel and equipment and men, he just can't – it's an attritional thing that he just cannot keep up with. But it doesn't stop him from winning these these battles against the British forces there – because the British at the time, they were desperate for victory. Churchill was in a tough position. He really needed wins. And all that they were, the, the mentality of the, the British leadership in the field was one of, of kind of um, slow, protective warfare, basically fighting not to lose. But not trying, you know, it's not that they weren't trying to win. They were just so concerned about losing that they were putting themselves in positions that made it very easy to beat them. And so uh, at the Battle of Gazala, probably his crowning moment uh, in mid-May through uh, June 1942, Rommel sets up so many traps using, uh, you know, his Panzer threes and his 88s, which are uh, the 88, the German 88 is a famous, uh, it was originally an anti-aircraft weapon, but it's such a good, uh, well-built 
piece of machinery that the Germans realized pretty early on it works extremely effectively as an anti-tank gun. And at, uh, at Gazala, the British will lose 500 tanks. And these tanks are extremely, extremely important because the British at the time were, uh, were, were just in a tough spot. Both they were trying, they were stretched extremely thin, trying to fight all over the world um, with very limited resources. So the loss of 500 tanks at Gazala was extremely hard to replace. And also it, it wreaked havoc on the mentality of the people back at home. Max Hastings' book, uh, Winston's War, goes into it really well. And, and again, we'll talk about it in Cauldron. But the British at the point that uh, the North African fighting was happening. So 1940, the British public was all gung-ho where, you know, we have Churchill, it's us against the world, we're the only democracy still alive to fight the Nazis. By 1941-42, there had been so many setbacks, so many losses, so many failures. And Winston was basically the man behind all of them because he was trying to pull something out and so by this point in the war, the British public is is extremely dissatisfied and disaffected. They are just kind of beaten. They're just waiting for the next blow to hit. And Rommel keeps delivering these, these quick jabs that are just hugely costly. And so the British public is, is suffering from uh, kind of war wariness at this point. Uh, and and Rommel was his grasp of strategy. Uh, unfortunately for the Nazi side, Rommel's grasp of strategy did not match his tactical ability. Um, his victories that he was scoring all over North Africa convinced him that the British were uh, beatable, and so he believed that. He was being tactically smart and strategically smart, moving further and further into British territory and into Egypt. Um, at one point, he goes, uh, gets to the Katara Depression, which is a massive land uh, depression that is uh, not tank country at all on one side. And then on the other side of his flank or on his line, he's got the, the Mediterranean again, not tank country. And so he's trying to, to fight his way to Cairo and to the Suez canal. And it would essentially shut down the British, uh, trade and ability to make war and keep the home Island, uh, supplied, and it would also open up huge reserves of oil and and material for the Nazi war effort. So Rommel's uh, strategy to get to the Suez Canal and get to Cairo is sound, but he just did not have the material or the, enough men to do it. And there is an argument to be made that a, a good general would know that and know that you can't waste what, you, what little you have on uh, goals that are... Um, are out of your reach. However, it's easy to say that when you don't have Hitler screaming and, and carrying on about how he needs generals that fight and he needs men that will, uh, will do what he wants, exactly what he wants. So he plunges forward into Egypt and gets halted at the, uh, the Qatar depression at the first battle of El Alamein, where, uh, I want to say it was Auchinleck, 
uh, was the British commander and basically sets up a defensive line and is able to halt the Rome, uh, the German advance. Uh, I'm researching the next episode, and so I've got Romans on the brain. So Auchinleck, the British Eighth Army general, stops the Germans at the Qatar Depression in the first Battle of El Alamein. What happens next is almost similar to something out of World War I. You have these two... Um, enemies facing off across a series of defensive positions and mines and trenches and built-in gun positions and all that. And on either end, there's either the sea or a physical obstacle that basically defines where the battlefield is. At the Second Battle of El Alamein, Rommel attempts to do the same thing that the British did, which is create a defensive position and hold that position as long as possible, chewing up the enemy as they come forward. Bernard Montgomery, his opponent, the man that replaced Auchinleck and became the 8th Army commander, would go on to build up basically an insurmountable force that although did was successfully checked by Rommel, um, during the Second Battle of Alamein. There were, there were a few hairy moments there. They just had built up too much, and so Rommel had to do something that is considered probably up there with Gazala as maybe his most, uh, most tactically deft and inspired moment where under attack in heavy pressure all across the battle line because he doesn't know where the next punch is going to come from the British, Rommel's able to disengage his entire force, turn them around, and get his entire army moving back towards their, uh, their main bases in the uh, western part of North Africa. And this is important because this is part of the reason why Rommel's supplies were so uh, beat up is he had these thousands of miles of lines of communication and supply. So obviously if if you're the the main port where your fuel is coming in from is 5,000 miles away from you and the British, the fuel that they're getting is only 200 miles away from them, you're in a tougher position and it's untenable and and Rommel recognized that and at one point he says that he's going to do, to relieve uh, uh, move the line and, and retreat and Hitler tells him he can't and refuses to allow him to do that. And eventually even Hitler realizes that uh, he's put Rommel in this in, in, uh, completely impossible position and relents and let lets Rommel return to his base and try and shorten up those lines of communication and supply. The other factor that's interesting is the entire North African campaign, the British had uh, figured out using Bletchley Park and Enigma, they had figured out the cipher situation. So they knew what Rommel's plans were. They knew when Rommel, at one point, he's got a terrible swelling of the liver and uh, he's got an infection. He's an ill man throughout the North African campaign, although you wouldn't know that due to the propaganda photos and all that. But uh, at one point, he has to return to Germany to uh, convalesce. And his replacement, uh, I think it's General Stoom, um, basically his replacement replacement dies early in the Battle of El Alamein. And the British know all this. They know that Rommel is relaying messages saying that he's not confident, he's not sure if they'll be able to win, he doesn't have enough equipment, he's screaming for more tanks, he needs more of everything. And um, none of that's hidden. The British know that the whole time, and, and it had to have made fighting him much easier. 
especially given uh, as as he becomes known as the Desert Fox, um, he's a he's a tricky, wily opponent. But it's easier to beat a tricky, wily opponent when you know exactly what his next move is going to be. Um, so after El Alamein, he he. This he pulls off this incredible long fighting withdrawal across the deserts and across the entire North African countryside, all along the coast, and and delivers another brilliant. Oh, and so then on top of the allies knowing what he's going to do and and knowing that he has no men or, or supplies or anything, on the other side of the African continent, uh, the Allied American forces are performing. What again is an amazing feat? This basically, essentially, a transatlantic uh, amphibious landing, and the entire American contingent of the Allied fighting force is landing in North Africa on the backside of Rommel's force. So he is is able to take his fighting withdrawal, and he runs across North Africa, and it's at the Kasserine Pass in February 1943 where he. Uh, lands another just inspired move, a counterpunch that knocks out a bunch of, of American armor and troops and teaches the Amer- gives the Americans a real bloody nose right at the very beginning of this war, teaching Omar Bradley and Eisenhower and Patton and all these generals that they, they think they know what they're doing, but it's not until they actually get there that they know what the hell's going on and how to fight and how to win. And it takes this loss at Kasserine Pass for a lot of the uh, American soldiers to, to get their first real blooding and find out that uh, this isn't going to be that easy. It's not going to be a show up. And like the last war where we sh- showed up at the very end and kind of threw our weight around in the First World War and, and then everybody said, oh, well, they were the saviors. No, no, no. This, this, this Second World War is a different animal where we're actually going to have to do some serious fighting. Um, after, uh, the fall of North Africa, again, Rommel's, it's an impossible task to save. And so eventually North Africa does fall to the allies, uh, and the eventual defeat in Tunisia happens to both the British and the American, or at the hands of both the British and the American. Rommel, uh, was recalled from North Africa before the final Axis surrender, kind of as a way to keep him from having the taint of defeat. Um, Hitler wanted to have Rommel up there as as an unbeatable general for both his men and to try and inspire fear in the in the enemy. Um, and once he returns, he's supervising the defense of the French coastline. Uh, eventually, he becomes the commanding general of all the Allied of all the Axis defenses along the French co- coastline and of Fortress Europe. Um, and it's. Uh, he was away on leave, famously. D-Day happens, and the the man who might have been able to stop it or at least know how to, to make it hurt to the point where the, the, the invasion might have been called off uh, is away on leave. And in July of 1944, he's actually wounded in an air attack because at this point in the war, it's everybody knows that the Allies are going to win. It's just a matter of time. And really the, uh, the vaunted Luftwaffe, uh, is falling apart, and the Allied air superiority over Europe is really becoming established, and they can't even keep their generals safe. So Rommel is peppered by a uh, enemy plane and is injured, and 
What we come to find out is the the famous uh, assassination attempt on Hitler, which um, the which I forget the name of it, but it's it's got a name to the effect of like the the July twenty first attempt or something to that effect. Um, Hitler survives it, and because of his psychopathy and paranoia at the point, uh, at this point, he wants heads. And Rommel, although it's not clear, we're, we're pretty sure he had nothing to actually do with the assassination attempt. Uh, Rommel's name is mentioned by a few people, and he's given a choice. And Hitler basically says to him, you can contest this and you will be found guilty and you will hang and your family will be found guilty and go to the camps or you can uh, basically take a suicide pill, die with full military honor and your family will survive and be unharmed. Uh, and this is again another one of those points where Rommel gets um, credit as a, as a gallant you know modern knight because he basically he goes with the ladder and he commits suicide to save his family and also to save him uh to save his legacy and also his men uh it was, apparently it was important to him that his men not believe that he was part of this traitor's thing and so he wanted his men to have the memory of him as he was when he was leading them and so he goes ahead and he takes the cyanide pill i think it was cyanide or arsenic and he commits suicide and avoids the trial and execution and basically allows uh, the Allied powers after the war to claim that he was one of the good ones and uh, not exactly, not this evil, monstrous Nazi, um, kind of like what they would end up doing with, uh, you know, Goring, where, or actually, no, they, they end up treating all of the Nazi generals pretty poorly, but, and and deservedly so. Um, and then the thing about Rommel that's, Pretty famous is, you know, he would treat captured British soldiers with, with great dignity. At one point, as as the men are marching out of, uh, I want to say it was Tobruk, which he had captured, as the British soldiers are marching out, he's on his panzer and saluting them as they walk by, and they start saluting him back. And it's this scene out of, you know, 16th, 17th century warfare where the, the, the men who, um, it's a game. They're treating each other like like they're just war gamers. It, 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 that, that makes it simplified, but it does have a strange, out-of-time, anachronistic feel to it when you see uh, a, a Nazi panzer leader saluting, you know, uh, surrendered British soldiers as they walk by. But apparently, again, he was this very uh, chivalrous, kind of knightly German general. Um, so that's the quick bio of Erwin Rommel. Uh, again, this is going to be how it goes forward. We're going to do little blip, kind of quick one, two, three uh, overviews and just talk about the, the various commanders in history. So I hope you enjoyed that. Next up, we're going to, I think we're going to cover Montgomery, or I might save him and just do that for the actual full cauldron episode. And uh, if if we end up saving him, I think I'm going to go and pick somebody in ancient history to give a quick once over. So anyhow, I hope you enjoyed that and uh, have a good night. Bye now.
Thank you.